This is The Guardian. Today, a dramatic escalation in the war in Ukraine. But does it reveal Putin's weakness? On Monday, Russia unleashed a brutal wave of missile strikes across a number of Ukrainian cities, killing at least 11 civilians and wounding dozens of others. Multiple explosions rocked the capital city of Kyiv for the first time in four months. According to the mayor of Kyiv, explosions went off near the center of the city. In the attack knocked out electricity and water supplies, with explosions hitting infrastructure all the way from Lviv in the west to Kharkiv in the east. It is the most widespread bombardment of Ukraine since the Russian invasion began in February, dropping around half a billion dollars worth of weaponry. G7 leaders are pledging their undeterred support for Ukraine after escalating... The assault was described by G7 allies as indiscriminate attacks on innocent civilian populations that constitute a war crime. The rain of powerful missiles comes as revenge for Saturday's audacious destruction of the Kerch Bridge, President Putin's $4 billion project that connects Russia directly to Crimea. There is no doubt that this is an act of terrorism aimed at destroying Russia's critically important civilian infrastructure. So could this be a turning point in the war? The head of Britain's intelligence and security agency, GCHQ, has declared that the Russian military is exhausted. The costs to Russia in people and equipment are staggering. And that Putin's judgment is flawed. And a cold winter is coming. From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Iqbal. Today in Focus, a blown up bridge and Putin's revenge. Luke Harding, you're a foreign correspondent and you've been reporting from the lead up to the attack on Ukraine and throughout this conflict. What happened last weekend was one of the most dramatic days so far. Can you begin by describing what happened on the Kerch Bridge in Crimea? What happened was that it blew up. Uh, very dramatically. If you look at the footage, you can see cars going along the road section of the bridge. There's also a rail section of the bridge which runs alongside it. And there was an enormous enveloping orange explosion. That knocked out one lane of uh, road and also satellite train which appeared to be carrying fuel so that it was just extraordinary footage of burning of water of debris detritus and I think it was probably the most spectacular moment of the war so far after the sinking of the Moskva the Russian battleship which went down in spring. So how many casualties were there how how big an explosion are we talking? 
The Russians say that three people were killed. It was clearly a very large explosion. I mean, it was not sufficiently large to knock the whole thing down. But it was an enormous blow to physical infrastructure. But it also, actually, it was a big blow to the regime of Vladimir Putin. Well, Luke, on Wednesday, Russia said it detained eight people in connection with that explosion on the bridge in an investigation that Ukraine has said is nonsense. But what do we know about who is responsible for the attack and how it was carried out? There's little doubt, really, that this was the work of Ukraine, of the government of Volodymyr Zelensky, and in particular of his intelligence agencies. I've had discussions in Kiev with people about the bridge. They were always going to try and destroy it. Now, the question was, how would they do it? Because what we've seen since actually before the invasion on February the 24th and subsequently, we've seen an enormous number of Western weapons flowing into Ukraine, in particular, these HIMARS systems from the Americans, these long-range artillery systems. But the problem that Kiev has faced is that with the current ammunition they have, they cannot use these HIMARS to destroy the bridge. So we know it wasn't that. How they did it, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not a structural engineer, but it seems to me looking at the footage that the explosion comes from below rather than above. But I think probably we have to wait for the end of this war to find out. Luke, so you've talked about why the bridge is so significant, but why was it built in the first place? And what else can you tell us about the infrastructure? This really is Putin's pet infrastructure. When it was opened in 2019, he was the first car across. He was driving it with two other guys. Going over the Kerch Strait, which is what it spans. It was a major, massive infrastructure project built by kind of friends of his, cronies of his. Snaking out across the strait, separating Crimea from the Russian mainland, then rising high above the water, Russia's new mega project has taken 27 months to build and cost some three and a half billion dollars. And at 19 kilometers, it's now the longest bridge of its kind in Europe. It's the sort of pumping artery that keeps Crimea alive. Because up until February, Crimea was pretty isolated from the rest of Ukraine. The Ukrainians had blocked a key water canal, which meant there was very often drought on the peninsula. There was a Russian writer who described stealing Crimea without occupying the rest of Ukraine as the equivalent of, of nicking someone else's expensive iPhone, but not bringing a charger. So the bridge was the charger. You blow the bridge, you can no longer make Crimea work. And for Putin, Crimea is a special place. It's a symbolic place. Putin has been going on about Crimea for, for a long, long time. He says it's part of Russia forever. But also, it's sort of this idea of reuniting or what once was historical Russia, spiritual Russia, reuniting Belarus, Ukraine, and, and today's Russia is the heart of, of his invasion project. How damaging is this attack to the Kremlin? The attack is, is a moment of acute embarrassment for Putin because it's symbolically associated with him. So it's not just an attack on infrastructure. It is an attack on him personally. By the way, of course, it happened just after he celebrated his 70th birthday. So it was clearly Kiev's birthday present to Moscow. And, and also it's all about timing and context. They've lost a huge amount of territory in the northeast around the city of Kharkiv, where I was recently, with a whole lot of cities and towns being liberated by Ukrainian forces. And they're also being squeezed on another front in the south around the city of Kherson, which is not far from Crimea. And so it's in the context of these military defeats and increasing grumbling and criticism from ultra-nationalists, from what are called Russian military 
bloggers who've been criticizing not Putin directly, but those around him and his chief of the general staff, Valery Gerasimov, and suggesting that the war is not going well. So it was definitely a blow to Putin and, and some kind of response from the Kremlin, I think, was inevitable. And how did Putin react? Putin has said that this is a terrorist attack. He's blamed Ukraine's intelligence agencies for carrying it out. And he said that Russia has been forced to defend itself by taking action and launching a whole series of missiles against targets all across Ukraine, which is what happened on October the 10th. Several other cities far from the front lines were also rocked by explosions. In the western city of Lviv, electricity and hot water were cut by the blasts. At least one missile coming into land in a busy intersection in the heart of the Ukrainian capital. 84 missiles, 24 drones across Ukraine. These are images from the city of Dnipro, a massive explosion just in front of that car there. And look at the map tonight, multiple cities targeted across Ukraine. And we learned President... The Russians were using Soviet-era uh, Tupolev jets. We think they took off from Murmansk in the far north of Russia. And they were then firing from inside Russian airspace at Ukrainian targets, flinging caliber missiles costing five, six million dollars apiece. According to Volodymyr Zelensky's government, they, they fired more than 80 of them. About half of them were shot down by Ukrainian anti-air defenses. But unfortunately, some of them got through and they landed all over the place. And it, it's quite hard to see what the, the Russians were intending to hit, because if you look at Kiev, a city I know well and where I've lived for much of this year, one missile landed in Taras Shevchenko Park, my favorite park, where I would go every morning, have a cup of coffee, sit on a bench next to two museums just behind Taras Shevchenko University, and the children's playground was wiped out. Another missile landed about 200 meters from there on Taras Shevchenko Boulevard, incinerated several cars, killed people. We're talking about at least 19 people dead, scores injured, more than 100 injured. And we, we saw attacks um, in Lviv, for example, on, on the power plant there, plunging the city into darkness with no electricity. And it, it seems what's going on is a deliberate, cynical, you might say, nihilistic operation to make Ukrainians freeze this winter. So they have no heat, no water, that living becomes unbearable. It's basically terror, because this has been a pattern all the way through of hitting civilians, of killing non-combatants, men, women, sometimes kids. More than 500 kids have been killed since February. So it was a ghastly day. And I think the interesting question is now is, you know, will Putin repeat these escalating tactics or is it the reality that the Russians are actually running out of these kinds of weapons? Putin has consistently denied that Russia is targeting civilians, but why are these attacks so indiscriminate? I mean, Putin denies all sorts of things, but basically... Putin lies all the time. <laughs> That's what you have to understand. And he does it because it's an instrument to demoralize your opponents, to promulgate fake narratives. And sometimes they resonate with certain sections of the populations. What's important is that Putin hopes that the Europeans, the Americans, will eventually decide that Ukraine can't win this war and stop supplying arms. That's one goal. And another goal is, is to just terrorize the civilian population so they give up and stop resisting inside Ukraine. 
And I think, well, he does it because he can. And it's about showing who is master, showing who is boss. It's the logic of the gangster, of the mafia. And how has President Zelensky handled the situation since the devastation on Monday? Zelensky has done what, what he always does, which is to distill the national mood and to articulate it in these videos. The video he did immediately after the strike on Monday was moving. They want to create panic and chaos. They want to destroy our energy system. The second target is people. They deliberately chose such a time and such targets in order to cause as much harm as possible. But we are Ukrainians. We help each other. We believe in ourselves. We will restore everything that was destroyed. He said very explicitly that, that Putin was targeting civilians and targeting energy infrastructure, but this would not alter Ukraine's resolve. And moreover, he said, Ukraine has existed before this enemy, and Ukraine will exist after it. Ukraine cannot be intimidated, only united even more. Ukraine cannot be stopped, only convinced even more that terrorists must be neutralized. And it's the fact that he shows his citizens a vision of a future which will have Ukraine in it, because Putin's project is to annihilate Ukraine. He thinks Ukraine is not a country. He thinks Ukrainians are not a people. He wants it to stop existing. So Zelensky is saying, you know, contra Putin, Ukraine was a country. Ukraine is a country. Ukraine will be a country. And that's a powerful message uh, at a time when bombs are falling from the sky. Beyond Ukraine to the rest of the world, how have Ukraine's allies responded? Ukraine's allies have responded with indignation, of course, and condemnation. And the US President Joe Biden has condemned Russia's missile strikes. In a statement, he said these attacks killed and injured civilians and destroyed targets with no military purpose. They once again demonstrate the utter brutality of Mr Putin's illegal war on the Ukrainian people. The European Union has also condemned Russian missile strikes, labelling them barbaric. Russia once again has shown to the world what it stands for. It is terror and brutality. Those who are responsible have to be held accountable. And they're very good at messaging that the Zelensky people has been really clear. Give us air defences. Because yes, they shot down half these missiles, but half got through and people died on their way to work. Ordinary people were killed on Monday. And so the government of Olaf Scholz in Germany, it had already pledged to give these highly sophisticated air defense systems and has said that that will be sped up and that one will arrive soon. The Biden administration has promised more air defenses. My feeling is that even with, with more sophisticated weaponry, it'll be impossible to shoot everything down. Luke, last week on the podcast, we heard about how Putin had annexed four Ukrainian regions after conducting sham referendums. How do you think Russia has been faring in recent weeks in this war? Russia's been faring badly in recent weeks. What the Ukrainian army has done has been quite astonishing. I, I was recently in Kharkiv province in the northeast, and I visited a whole series of cities and towns that were liberated by Ukrainian troops. I was in Azum, I was outside Kupinsk, Shevchenkov. Actually, if you'd asked me if in early summer will you ever visit Azum? I would have said, no, it's a major Russian military garrison. There's no prospect of my going there anytime soon. And in fact, the Russian forces collapsed and fled. So I was in Kiev when these territories were annexed. Putin was annexing places, including a city called Liman, 
in the northeast and the ukrainians took it back so your next territory on friday you lose territory on 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 saturday and no one actually knows what this means where the borders are and i think what's interesting as well is just to go back to the bridge crimea is in play the ukrainians want to to kick the russians out of crimea whether they can do it we don't know but by annexing all of this territory crimea has become just another part of land that russia has stolen and you know there's an interesting question about what ukrainian victory looks like the ukrainians will not stop the ukrainians think they're winning this war but i think we can say emphatically that russia is losing insofar as it you know putin failed to take kiev his forces are currently occupying about sort of 15 80 percent of the country but they're going backwards so i think we are in a dangerous place where more and more people in russia are realizing that this is a major strategic blunder by vladimir putin Luke, you've said that Russia is losing this war and that these missile attacks we've been seeing this week are not actually changing anything militarily. But in recent weeks, we've also seen a huge number of young men being drafted into the Russian army, and many thousands of them will soon be arriving in Ukraine. Do you think this will alter the balance? So we've now got a situation where the Kremlin is rushing in tens of thousands of new men to try and hold the line. I don't think they're there to conduct offensive operations. I think they're there so that Putin can dig into territory that he's already the next. But I don't think it's going to work. The reason I don't think it's going to work, I mean, apart from the fact that they're, they're badly trained or not trained at all, badly equipped, is that fundamentally the Russian soldiers don't know why they're there. You see graffiti. I've seen it myself. It's you know, it's for Stalin or it's for Putin or it's for, for Russia. But actually, what is the purpose of this operation? We're not entirely clear. I mean, Putin is trying to pretend it's a defensive operation to defend Russia, whereas actually it's a classically imperial war of conquest. Whereas you talk to any Ukrainian soldier and you say, look, you know, Dimitro, why are you fighting? And they all say the same thing. I'm fighting for my family. I'm fighting for my children, for their future. I'm fighting for my home. I'm fighting for my land. I'm fighting for my country. And look, they don't want to die any more than you and I want to die. But they're prepared to go into battle and to fight and to win. And the Russians are not. They don't really want to be wiped out in squalid circumstances. They're putting up a good enough fight, I would say, but we have enough strength and materials to go forward. The main thing, maybe, is motivation. I think that they don't have motivation. So, yeah, huge mobilization. I don't think it will stop the Ukrainians from advancing further. Coming up, will the attack on the Crimea bridge be a turning point in the war. Luke, it may turn out the attack on 10th of October to be one of the great inflection points of this war. How big of a moment do you think it is? For people in Kiev, it's a reality check. I've been in Kiev throughout this year. I was there on February 24th when it all began, I was there back in April when, when it was pretty spooky. I mean, there was one restaurant you could eat at. There was an eight o'clock curfew. You would walk around the streets, very few people around, all the shops shut. And the city has come back to life. And by summer, I was sitting in Tower Shevchenko Park. I think it must have been May. The blossom was out. There was birdsong. People were back. Families were back. And there was an ice cream vendor selling ice cream. And I just thought, OK, we're approaching some kind of normality here. Now, I think that's sort of gone. People were perhaps a little bit complacent about air raid sirens. Now, probably, you will go and hide. And now people are looking at the sky more. 
What about how Ukraine responds now? Is there any chance that there, that Zelensky might be granted the long-range missiles he's after, for instance? Or is there another target that they could aim for that has a similar military value? Look, this is not Lord of the Rings. This is not a Netflix-style drama. But what you can say about the Zelensky team is they're all from TV. Zelensky was himself an actor and a very successful comedian who became a politician. And some of the people who work for him are showrunners or journalists. They're, they're people who understand the power of storytelling. And they get symbols. I remember a piece I did in May. I interviewed the head of, of the Ukrainian Postal Service, a, a very nice Ukrainian-American guy called Igor. And on April the 12th, um, Igor brought out a stamp of the Russian warship Moskva being sank. Two days later, it sank. He'd also done the stamp of the Crimean Bridge being blown up. <laughs> now it has been blown up. I mean, it's the predictive powers of, of, of philately and stamps. It's quite astonishing. But there are other kind of symbolic targets that I think the Ukrainians will hit. I don't think they're going to be daunted by these strikes. I think their resolve, if anything, is going to be greater and this is the irony of this terrible war, is that Putin sort of claimed that Ukraine has become an anti-Russian project. That wasn't true before 2014. A lot of people were sympathetic to Russia. They watched Russian TV. They spoke Russian. But by his kind of savagery, Putin has made Ukraine an anti-Russian project, not just for this generation, but for all generations. And Ukraine won't stop. For them, it's existential. They, they lose this war. They, they cease to exist. And at some point, something will break. And I think that break will happen ultimately in Moscow and not in Kiev. And yet winter is now nearly upon us. How well equipped do you think both sides are to fight a war in what will now be freezing conditions? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It does get very cold, particularly in the east. I, mean, I was in Mariupol in January and it was really very, very cold. But it's less cold in the south. And so I sort of think it's going to be harder for the Ukrainian army to make gains in the east not impossible but harder i think in the south they can pretty much keep going and what you have to bear in mind is that the ukrainian population supports ukrainian troops with food they support them morally i mean you've seen footage of where i was in Kharkiv oblast of ukrainian troops being hugged by old ladies being offered pancakes uh, apples so it will be easier for ukrainians to weather the winter for the russians it'll be much harder because they're badly equipped they're not always fed no one cares about them I mean, there's an expression that you hear all the time in Ukraine, which is that they're miasa, which is the Russian word for meat. This is meat being thrown pretty cynically by the Putin regime into the grinder in the hope that it will work. There's a lot of commentary about how weak Russia now looks. But do you think there is a danger in underestimating the Kremlin's strength and where it might possibly go next? I've been following Putin a long time. And if you've got a kind of awful dark option or a kind of moderately bad option, generally it it's good to go with the really dark option because that tends to be how Putin behaves and thinks. I mean, certainly in terms of repression inside Russia, his security services ruthlessly clamped down on civil society so that really the best and brightest people in Russia have left the country. So no one is underestimating his vindictiveness, his capacity to inflict pain. And everyone wonders about a nuclear scenario. I think it's unlikely. I think Putin fears what the Americans might do by way of response. So we need to sort of think about it. But I don't think we, we should think too hard about it because then we, we play Putin's game. Putin wants to terrify everybody. He wants to spook and scare the world and be a global bogeyman. And actually, I think it's important that, that listeners to this podcast don't um, get fatigued because the headlines are grim. They are depressing. But just for a second, remember, this is the biggest war in Europe since 1945. There are a million people at arms and those people who are fighting and dying are people just like you and me, with families, with children, with loved ones. 
who want to live and they, they deserve our um, empathy and they deserve our respect. Luke, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Luke Harding. You can follow his reporting and more from our correspondents in Ukraine at theguardian.com. Luke's book, Invasion, Russia's Bloody War and Ukraine's Fight for Survival, is also out in November. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Klitsia Sala. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.